Oh, good evening. Yeah. I see I have no need to introduce myself, so I shan't. Uh, I'm wearing this microphone. It's a bit weird. I'll try to ignore it. Um, but uh, we are recording this. So if, uh, any, if you miss anything or you want to go back over anything, the recording will be made available on the church website. So we will begin with a short reading from the book of Deuteronomy, and then we will proceed into the lecture itself. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read in verse 10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord." who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Church history is a remembering of the deeds of our God. And this, this is a thing commanded to us in Scriptures. We are not to forget the sacred histories, but we are also not to forget the subsequent histories. So, let's begin with prayer and then get into the meat of this. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this good day. We thank You for this evening. We thank You that we can come together and begin our study of the history of Your church. And we praise You for Your mercy that You've shown to us that You have included us in Your wonderful church, in Your beautiful bride, and also that You have done this in the world and in history for the sake of man. We praise You, and we ask that You would help me to speak clearly, that You would help us to understand uh, the truth and also that we would learn to love the things that you love. In this case, that is your church. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So in the study of history, we typically separate history into two types. Uh, church history and secular history. So divine history is the history we find recorded for us in the Scriptures. And the, uh, the secular historical writings are any non-biblical types of history. Of the first class, the divine class, we have the earliest accounts going back into the book of Genesis to the very creation of the world. And these accounts are set down for us by Moses. Now, we don't know if he was working off of older source material, if he had texts for some of the early part of Genesis that he copied down, or if these texts were dictated directly by God, as were later writings in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We're not sure, but we have the account in any case. Now, of the second class, the secular histories, we have many early sources, though none so early as Genesis. We have Sumerian and Akkadian sources. So these are the sources from the people in uh, what's now Iraq. This is Abram's home country. When it says that Abram left from the Ur of the Chaldees, to go on his trip. Ur was one of the principal cities of old Sumer. So the, his people, the people he came from, they wrote their own histories. Now, the histories that we find recorded for us in Genesis are earlier and the pure, true story. These other stories, though scholars like to confuse this matter, are either corruptions or pious fictions. So when you find a divergence between something like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Noah account in the Bible, 
The biblical account is true, and Gilgamesh is a corruption. Now, we've got later writers, more what we would consider more serious historical writers. So, Herodotus, Thucydides, Ptolemy, Josephus. Then you get some of your Latin writers, Livy. All these guys write history. Now, some of their works are lost. So, we, we have gaps in our historical knowledge. Now, within the Christian framework, we have our own historians. We have men like Eusebius. I've got a copy of his works right here. The, these guys, these church historians, start where the Acts of the Apostles end. So, when we're talking about the church, again, we are talking about everything that follows from the ascension of Jesus at the beginning of Acts. Everything from that point until now is church history. And the writings that we have in the Scriptures and Acts are true, by the way. I, I feel like I need to say that. It's 2023 and a lot of people don't believe that. <laughs> Those are true accounts. Now, all history is a record of events. That's what it is. It's a record of events. Now, this world has been made by God, by His direct agency. It's also immediately sustained by Jesus Christ, as we read in Hebrews 1.3. He says there that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So Christ is upholding the universe. We also read in the Gospel of John that all things are made through Him, that being Jesus, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we are to understand in the act of creation that Jesus is the Word spoken. He is the Word. And John in John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the Word by which God has created all things. He is the Word by which God sustains all things. So the creation and the present continuing existence of all that is depends solely on the act of care of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Reformed circles, we often refer to this as part of the doctrine of providence. That's the theological term. But what I mean to say is that all history is a record of the acts of man on the canvas of God's cosmic painting. He is the author of the story. He is the, the director of the stage play. He is the creator of the universe. He is the beginning. And he is the point the end, the telos, the thing to which all goes. And we play as actors on this stage, but He Himself enters the play and is the point of the production. So we need to consider that when discussing history. The details of history, the, the small thing, who came first, you know, King Arthur or Winston Churchill. <laughs> it's a silly detail. But it matters. This is the story God has told. The grand movements and themes of history are part of the story God is telling. The disasters, the triumphs, catastrophes and tragedies, the successes, the good news and the bad news. This is all God's story, and He's telling it in time. So church history as such is the specific record of the church of Christ from its inauguration following Jesus' ascent into heaven down to the present day. And because 
Jesus is the one in whom all things, whether visible or invisible, find their coherence, as we read in Colossians 1, then church history very really is the history of the center. All secular history orbits around church history. This is the center. This is the center of God's plan in the world and the record of it. Now, in church history, we may observe all the main themes of the Bible, and there are some themes in the Bible. We have the theme of the justification and the salvation of men by God. Man sinned, and God has saved. We have in the Scriptures and in church history the theme of holy war, the eternal conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We have also the theme of blessing the nations via the offspring of Abraham. Right? We are Gentiles, and we are blessed on account of Christ, the seed of Abraham. Another main theme in the Scriptures that is also present in church history is the theme of maturity. Maturity. The church begins uh, with enough people to fill a small room. <laughs> about this many people, maybe a few more. And now, about one-seventh or about a billion people name the name of Christ. When Jesus told the parable of the mustard seed, He wasn't joking. It's a very small seed. You look at a mustard seed, go into your wife's spice rack, look at that thing. That's, that, that's tiny. It's almost as small as a tobacco seed. Ask me how I know later. So that becomes a large tree and has become a large tree. We are progressing through history from the res, uh, to the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of God. We are progressing towards that thing. The church, which is now in its youth, is more mature than it once was. Again, we started out as a mustard seed, right? So, Walter, where are you? Right there, okay. How old are you, six? Okay, I was once six, I am no longer six. In the life of a man, hopefully he matures, <laughs> but he definitely grows. And the church is doing the same thing. It is not yet what it shall be, and we know that by faith. It shall be holy, and it shall be a pure bride worthy of Christ. The church shall also be full, for in days to come Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. And that's from Isaiah 27. And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's from Isaiah 11. The church is not as full as it shall be. And so we become, we're coming to the beginning of the chronology of the subject matter of this series, which I hope by God's grace will in time take us to the Council of Nicaea. That's where I plan to get to in our first um, block of instruction over the course of this winter. So the book of Acts is the first place to go. We're going to go at about a 10,000-foot level and fly over the book of Acts and get the highlights and the lowlights. The fact that we have a work of church history included in the canon is something I find interesting. Uh, this shows a certain continuity between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, after the Lord does something, like a rearranging of a covenant, He always follows with a record of events. When the Lord created the world, we then have a record of events following from that thing. When Noah goes into the ark and survives the flood with his family, and then the Lord 
reinstitutes the covenantal arrangement through him, there follows a historical account, which takes us down to Abram being called from Ur, receiving the promises of God, and then a historical account. Moses, same thing. The new covenant is instituted at Sinai, and then we have to follow these poor people wandering around in a desert for 40 years arguing. And thus we know they were Dutch. Oh, but Okay, so, or Mennonites. <laughs> so, the advent of a new covenantal arrangement is always followed by a history. And so we have in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke wrote Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. It bears his name. So we get to the resurrection of Jesus and then to the ascension. And immediately thereafter, we have this record of the church. So, in brief, it begins with the ascension and then the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas, as was prophesied in Psalm 69 and 109. From there, we have Pentecost, where Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. This is the first sermon recorded for us after the ascension of Christ. And 3,000 souls were saved that day. <laughs> That's a great start. That is a great start. Now, <laughs> now, after some controversy and persecution, okay, controversy, persecution, and growth go together, we arrive at the first martyr, St. Stephen. That's in Acts chapter 6 through Acts 8. He preaches this marvelous sermon uh, and gets killed for it. Uh, there, there was an Anglican cleric once who said that wherever Peter, uh, wherever Paul in specific went, uh, there was either a riot or mass conversions, uh, but wherever I go, they serve tea. Right? So the, the quality of preaching may have diminished somewhat over the last 2,000 years. So Stephen preaches a marvelous sermon and dies for it. Peter begins the preaching to the Gentiles. This is a key thing. This is a key thing in Acts chapter 10. Peter preaches to the Gentiles. What was it that was promised to Abraham? That the whole world would be blessed in him, in his seed. The whole world would receive blessing. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God was always on the heart of God. From the beginning, he was going to do this. And now, in Acts 10, we see him beginning. I find it interesting that the first Gentile convert in the church era is an Italian man named Cornelius. He was a centurion of the Italian cohort. So a centurion uh, in a modern army would hold a rank of either a captain or a major. So this is a battle-hardened veteran He's probably got muscles up to here. Right, this is a man who's literally walked the length and breadth of the Roman Empire, knifing people, professionally. He's a soldier. He's a veteran. He's from Italy. He has status. He has money. He is a tested leader, experienced, competent. He possesses prestige and no small amount of power. Especially out in the periphery of the empire where he is, he possesses significant, immediate local power. He is also a godly man. It says in Acts that he fears the Lord, and it shows that he's generous with his wealth. Then one day he sees a vision. An angel comes to him. And the angel commands him to send for Peter. Cornelius immediately obeys. This man does not stop to ask questions. He obeys. And now he sends two servants of his household and a devout soldier. This is an interesting detail, okay? This is no accident that we are told this detail. 
A devout and a pious leader will produce the effect of devout piety in the people he leads. Cornelius has servants and soldiers under his command who share in his devotion. This is a very interesting detail, and those of you in leadership, consider that. Consider that point well. Somehow, the Holy Spirit's been working in these men that the Italian cohort would be a fertile and pious soil into which the gospel could be planted. Now, with the salvation of Cornelius and his household, we have the beginning of the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, in Acts 12, we have the record of the martyrdom of the first of the apostles. Up till now, we've had Stephen, not an apostle, but a, a godly man full of the Spirit. He is our first martyr. Now, James, the brother of John, is murdered by Herod. And this heinous crime greatly pleased the Jewish authorities. It says in the Scriptures that they were greatly pleased. <laughs> if your death greatly pleases your enemies, you are a man of substance. Now we see this theme from James that we will see repeatedly in church history. He is martyred, and then conversions follow. The blood of the martyr is the seed of the tree of the church, and the water thereof. Now this martyrdom of James probably came within about three years of the martyrdom of Stephen, probably, because and I say this because Paul says something in Galatians about having gone off for three years after his conversion, basically to go do something or other. He disappeared off into the wilderness, went to Damascus and then disappeared for three years. Now, that, the beginning of his conversion happened after Stephen was martyred, and it appears to me that James would have been martyred sometime while Paul was missing. Now, Saul's conversion in Acts 9 eventually results in more than half of the New Testament being written. So Saul, or also known as Paul, was a central figure in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, but also in Damascus and Antioch. He, uh, he was brought to Antioch by Barnabas. Now, the Antioch church, as you will see when we continue on through the, the lecture series, became one of the great centers of Christian worship. In later centuries, when Arguments about precedence arose. <laughs> These are deeply entertaining and not edifying at all. Uh, when arguments about precedence arose, Antioch was always in the top five. So if, if you follow like MMA and they got the rankings, you know, who's, who's fighting who next depends on rankings. Antioch was top five, right up there with uh, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome. Rome, yeah, don't forget Rome. They come up again, a lot. <laughs> you can even go there today. So these arguments, when we get to them, they're very unfortunate and uh, prolonged. They argued for generations about this. Now, the rest of the book of Acts mainly concerns itself with the missionary travels of Paul, here, there, and everywhere. He goes to the Gentiles in Asia, then to Europe. And then the book concludes with Paul getting into a dispute with the Jewish community leaders in Rome. He closes his argument and the argument of the book of Acts saying, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So with the main exception of the letter to the Hebrews, the apostolic literature in the New Testament is to Gentile churches. 
In His sovereign design, the Lord has seen fit to include the Gentiles and to exclude the Jews, all on the basis of faith in Christ Jesus. So now, we've got to the end of Acts. Now we have to step out into the wild world of church history proper. And this is a wild world. There, it is not unjust to say that every heresy that has beset the church to this current day showed up in the first 300 years of the church. Uh, and when we get to, uh, for example, the Gnostic cult of Valentinian, uh, as related by Ignatius, no, Irenaeus, uh, you'll see that the, the theological scheme is basically Mormonism. Uh, it's almost identical. Um, nothing new under the sun. Now, I aim in this uh, overview to be heavy on biographical works and as much primary source material as I can get my hands on. I think that that would be most beneficial for you to hear from the men of those days some things that they wrote and said and did. Now, as uh, my primary source for the Apostolic Church Fathers, I'm using the Antinocene Fathers Volume 1. This is the first volume in a 28-volume set. It was originally published in 1885. Uh, this is the fourth edition reprinted in 2004. I highly recommend this to you. Uh, it's 28 volumes of the most, some of the most valuable, interesting, and arcane things you'll ever encounter. Like, some of it is very weird. Uh, and many of these can also be accessed online. So, we're going to look at Clement. He's going to be the first of the biographies that we analyze. So, Clement was likely a Roman citizen. He lived in Rome for most of his life. At the time that he wrote the epistle which bears his name, he would have likely been living during the reign of Domitian. He is the third bishop of Rome, okay? There are three bishops of Rome. Linus, great name, by the way. Peanuts picked it up. Uh, and then uh, either Cletus, which is a great name, or Anencletus. We're not sure. We've got sources for both names. But Cletus is a, an early church name. It's not just Tennessee. <laughs> so this fellow lived through the end of the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Has anyone got any clue what I just said? Okay, I got like three people nodding. Four people? Okay, excellent. Okay, so the Julio-Claudian dynasty of the Roman Empire starts technically and legally with Caesar Augustus. Okay, so we have uh, Caesar Augustus followed by Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. And what an actor the Romans lost when Nero died. <laughs> According to him. That was what he said when he died, by the way. So, now the latter three, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, were obnoxious men. They were dangerous to their own people. Uh, I'm not going to tell you much about them. However, Nero is quite famous for burning Christians uh, in Rome uh, during a dinner party. Uh, he used them to light the, um, uh, the eating area. And his guests were as horrified as you are to hear that. So, Clement 
lived in Rome through that. Okay, so this is, this is a man who's seen significant persecution. Uh, he would have been in Rome during the year of the four emperors. And it's called the year of the four emperors because they had four emperors in that year. So Nero commits suicide, right? Declaiming what a great actor Rome has lost. <laughs> uh, then Galba takes over. Then a man named Otho takes over. And then a man named Vitellius takes over in quick succession. These are army commanders and provincial governors who travel to Rome as fast as they can to seize power, and then each of them gets knifed in turn. Vespasian is the general and the governor in Syria. He's got all the legions besieging Jerusalem. Okay, when we read in uh, the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation, where John is describing a, a judgment that is coming on Jerusalem. Or when Jesus in Matthew 23 says, not one stone shall be left on another, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now this destruction of Jerusalem was accomplished by Vespasian and his son. So Vespasian is besieging Jerusalem and he finds out about what the shenanigans in Rome and there's three dudes, you know, knifing each other for the throne. And they didn't have Facebook. So they could not communicate quickly. <laughs> he finds out about it he sits down with his son and he says, what are we going to do? His son's like, look, you take part of the army, you go home, you get the throne, I'll finish the job here. Dad's like, good plan. So dad goes off with some guys, gets back as fast as he can, takes the throne. The Senate's like, mm, this dude showed up with help. Yes, he's the emperor. The, the Senate at this point was known for agreeing with whoever was strongest. They could change their mind though for money. So, Clement is living in Rome through this upheaval. Keep that in your mind. Now, according to Eusebius, the church historian, he became bishop in Rome sometime during Domitian's reign. And he served in Rome as its bishop up to the beginning of Trajan's reign. Okay, so Trajan is the next dynasty. And Trajan... Uh, is probably considered one of the most glorious of the Roman emperors. He, uh, under him and under his rule, he extended it to its furthest extent. He actually conquered um, all of modern-day Iraq. It's possible that Clement was alive when Trajan returned from his Parthian campaigns, which means he would have been in Rome for the martyrdom of Ignatius, who we'll talk about next time. So, this Flavian dynasty, okay, finishes off the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD with its destruction. Uh, some other things that would have happened when Clement was alive, the famous eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79, that was just down the coast. He was alive then. That buried Herculaneum and Pompeii, and you can go there and visit those places and see all the, uh, the charred remains of those cities. A notable thing that also happened during his lifetime was the campaigns of Agricola in Britain. So the Battle of Mons Grampus, if any of you are familiar with that. Uh, one guy is. It's uh, where the Romans showed up and whooped about 80,000 Scotsmen who probably deserved it. So that happened while Clement was alive. Uh, and Domitian campaigned in Dacia, which is modern-day Czech Republic, unsuccessfully because those Bohemians are kind of hard to deal with. So this is happening 
again, while Clement is alive. Titus, the emperor who built the amphitheater, which is now called the Colosseum, was built when Titus was bishop in Rome. So that's, that's the time period we're talking about. Okay, now, some elements of his personal biography. He was with Paul in Philippi. So this is a man who knew the apostle Paul. So in Philippians 4.3, he's named. This man studied under Paul, traveled with him, learned the gospel from him, and then carried on. He, uh, he served in the church of Rome as a presbyter through the persecution of Nero, and then later was made bishop. And he is believed to have died shortly after writing the epistle which bears his name, First Clement. There are two Clements. Second Clement is considered to have been written by someone else. We don't know who, but it wasn't Clement. And he, yeah, so he died shortly after writing it. Uh, some notes on the text. The story of a text is very interesting. The text of Clement's epistle to the Corinthians, he's writing to the Corinthian church. It's preserved for us in a single manuscript. Uh, this manuscript was found in a codex called Codex A. It was given by Cyril, the patriarch of Constantinople, to King Charles I, uh, also King Charles VI, or, yeah, sixth of Scotland, first of England, in 1628. So in 1628, the, uh, the bishop of Constantinople, as a gift, gave the oldest manuscript of this text to King Charles. It's now sitting in the British Museum. The manuscript is mostly complete, with a few damaged sections and one missing leaf near the end. So there's one little bit, we have no idea what he had to say. The epistle is frequently cited by the early church fathers in their writing. In fact, uh, in Eusebius he writes, there is an extant epistle of this Clement, which is acknowledged to be genuine and is of considerable length and of remarkable merit. He wrote it in the name of the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth when a sedition had arisen in the latter church. Uh, we know that this epistle also has been publicly used in a great many churches both in former times and in our own, and the fact that a sedition did take place in the Church of Corinth at the time referred to, uh, well, it's a trustworthy witness. So. A church fight from 2,000 years ago didn't just make it into the Bible. <laughs> it also made it into this. Mm. So there is hope. If you're involved in a church fight, we could be talking about it in 2,000 years. <laughs> so. Okay, so the work was written likely near 100 A.D., somewhere in that time period, so early in Trajan's reign. We're not sure the exact date. The Corinthian church asked for this epistle to be sent to them. So in chapter 1, now I'm not going to read the entire epistle. We will be here for a very long time. And uh, no, uh, no. So, but I am going to read some small sections. I want, I want you to get a bit of a flavor of, of the man and his piety. He begins the letter... The church of God which sojourns at Rome, to the church of God sojourning at Corinth, to them that are called and sanctified by the will of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God Almighty through Jesus Christ be multiplied. He sounds like his, his father Paul. <laughs> it's marvelous. And then continuing. 
Owing, dear brethren, to the sudden and successive calamitous events which have happened to ourselves, we feel that we have been somewhat tardy in turning our attention to the points respecting which you consulted us. So he's apologizing. We were being persecuted, that's why I couldn't get back to you on what you, uh, what you wrote me about. Now he's polite. And especially to that shameful and detestable sedition, utterly abhorrent to the elect of God, which a few rash and self-confident persons have kindled to such a pitch of frenzy that your venerable and illustrious name, worthy to be universally loved, has suffered grievous injury. Right? So he's, he's cutting to the chase. Who did not admire the sobriety and moderation of your godliness in Christ? Who did not proclaim the magnificence of your habitual hospitality? And who did not rejoice over your perfect and well-grounded knowledge? For ye did all things without respect to persons, and walked in the commandments of God, being obedient to those who had the rule over you, and giving all fitting honor to the presbyters among you. Ye enjoined young men to be of sober and serious mind. Ye instructed your wives to do all things with a blameless becoming and pure conscience, loving their husbands as in duty bound. And ye taught them that, living in the rule of obedience, they should manage their household affairs becomingly and be in every respect marked by discretion. So he praises them, and he continues with the praise. It's very interesting to me that when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, we've got a laundry list of things. <laughs> we have a laundry list of problems and sins in that church. 2 Corinthians, one of the things Paul gets after them for is, hey, you haven't forgiven the guy that repented of some of the sins I wrote to you about in the first letter. Uh, do that. Now we get to Clement, and he just opens up with a full-throated praise of the Corinthian church. It seems, from my reading of Clement, uh, that these fellows took Paul seriously and obeyed him. They actually obeyed what he had to write. Now, the one thing that they still struggled with 40 years after Paul wrote his letter was sedition. I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. So there's still factions and factionalism. And apparently men came into the church from outside who had not been involved in the original factionalism, and they started it up again. Um, so this is a real fine read. Pick it up, read it. Uh, we have also in chapter 5, this is an interesting historical note. In chapter 5 he writes, But not to dwell on ancient examples, let us come to the most recent spiritual heroes. Let us take the noble examples furnished in our own generation. So he's setting up these examples of piety. Through envy and jealousy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church have been persecuted and put to death. Let us set before our eyes the Ill Ill illustrious apostles. Peter, okay, so the apostle Peter, through unrighteous envy endured not one or two, but numerous labors, and when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. Okay, so he, he has a record of Peter's martyrdom. Owing to envy, Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee, and stoned. It's interesting that Paul, he also writes in uh, his epistles about being stoned. Uh, he sanctioned the stoning of Stephen and uh, himself was stoned on more than one occasion. And yet, 
After preaching both in the East and the West, he gained the illustrious reputation due his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West. Okay, this is a reference, and it depends who you talk to. We're not certain, but we think Paul may have made his way to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. We think that Clement here is telling us that he went there before he died. There is another um, tradition that says he went to Britain, but that does not have um, good provenance. We don't actually have any ancient record of that. Now, it says that he suffered martyrdom under the prefects. So the prefects, uh, that's generally taken to be two men named... Ooh, boy. Okay, Latin names. Can somebody help me? Tigellianus, Tigellianus, Tigellianus. Never name your kid that. And Sabinus, I can, I can handle that one. Okay, that's in the last year of the Emperor Nero. But it also could be Helius and Polycletus. So uh, one of the things that they would do is they would have um, offices that would last for one year in Rome. And so you can date events because they'll tell you who the two guys were that held that office. It happens with consuls, it happens with prefects, uh, and with um, the keisters. So which uh, is not what you think it is. So, and then it, he says that he, he suffered martyrdom under these prefects. Thus he was removed from the world and went to the holy place, having proved himself a striking example of patience. He, he has also, other than historical accounts in here, he has exhortations to repentance. These things, beloved, this is chapter 7, these things, beloved, we write unto you not merely to admonish you of your duty, but to remind ourselves. So this is one of the jobs of the preacher, not merely to preach the sermon at the people, or to the people, or for the people, but to himself. Because it's a shameful thing to have preached to someone else and then fail to attain that target. For we are struggling on the same arena, and the same conflict is assigned to both of us. Wherefore, let us give up vain and fruitless cares, and approach to the glorious and venerable rule of our holy calling. Let us attend to what is good, pleasing, and acceptable in the sight of Him who formed us. Let us look steadfastly to the blood of Christ and see how precious that blood is to God, which having been shed for our salvation, has set the grace of repentance before the whole world. Isn't that marvelous? Now, chapter 7 is just marvelous. He also talks about the justification uh, of faith in chapter 32. If you thought that justification by faith was a thing that Martin Luther invented, uh, you A, need to read Paul, <laughs> and B, Moses, and C, Clement. He says, and we too, being called by His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works, which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which, from the beginning, Almighty God has justified all men, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? Good one. Amen. Now, like a good writer, he does not finish his book with Amen. He carries on for many more chapters. <laughs> so, you can kind of get a flavor of the man in his writing. In chapter 47, he flatly commands the church, reread 1 Corinthians. It's always good. Uh, in 49, he has this marvelous section in praise of love. 
Uh, it's just, it's great. I definitely recommend this to you. That's a long passage. I won't read it. We are beginning to run out of time. So Clement was a man steeped in the Scriptures, steeped in the Scriptures. He quotes the Bible as if it's the air he breathes. This is a good thing. This is a thing to learn from the church fathers. The early church fathers breathed the Bible. They, they would string quotes together. And if you didn't know the Scripture, you had no idea that they were actually quoting everybody under the sun. And when we get to Justin Martyr and his apology to Trifo the Jew, he's pretty much going to quote from, the, I'd say, about half the book of Isaiah in the course of his argument. Like It's extensive. He's trying to convince a Jew that Jesus is the Messiah, and so he just hammers him with Isaiah repeatedly. It's marvelous. But this is something, this is a feature in the fathers. He suffered through at least one, but possibly more, fierce persecutions. And he was unwavering in his loyalty to Christ. He was unwavering in his loyalty and his love of the church. And this is one of the first and the earliest non-apostolic writings of the church. And you can see when you read it why he, he, Clement, has such a high reputation for what he had to write and how he had to say it. So he is a man representative of the first generation. Now in the, the next lecture we will look at a few of the others of the first generation, namely Polycarp and Ignatius. The importance of the second generation of the church cannot be overstated. It cannot be overstated. The Lord was pleased to use these men to build His kingdom, building the temple of God and the city of God, the kingdom of Christ, on the foundation of the apostles and their teaching. And this is a church, this is a building, a temple, which cannot, by God's grace, fall. Amen. Now, if anyone has any questions, please. Yes. Uh, yes, you will have cookies. There are cookies. And they're very good. Yes. No, that's okay. Yes. So is there a reason that it's not in the Bible? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, and the reason is that it was considered to be useful and fruitful to read, but it was not Scripture because Clement was not an apostle. He, he wasn't one of the men who walked with Jesus, and he wasn't Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's why. But he enjoys and enjoy, like he enjoyed then and enjoys now a very high reputation. Yeah, yes. Yes. I, I do know a bit about that, but you kind of like, I don't know you're like, just also like the Gnostic cult. Ah. But I was just confused what you were talking about. You, you just said that and then stopped right. and I was confused. Oh, okay, yeah. So we will cover Gnosticism in greater detail later. Uh, but I was comparing, I was making the point that the, um, there's nothing new under the sun. And so these Gnostic cults that we will be looking at are very much like modern cults. Yeah, very much so. So the, uh, the cult of Valentinian in particular is very similar to Mormonism. Uh, there was a question, yes? Would you recommend that book? Yes. Yeah, this, he, Clement is accessible. 
He's, uh, there are some of these fathers that are hard to read. <laughs> I don't know if they were very good writers in the, in the Latin in which they wrote or in the Greek in which they wrote, but in the English, they're dense. <laughs> they're like a pound cake. Good luck getting through it. Um, Clement is very easy. He's very lucid. Uh, Augustine is another one that's very easy to read. Um, Lactatius, easy to read. Uh, with a name like that, he should be. Um, it means uh, man with a milky uh, tongue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Following up on, uh, on Amanda's question, mm-hmm. uh, Luke doesn't seem to fit. True. He doesn't seem to fit, but there he is. There he is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Praise God. Yep. One of the one of the other things too is that uh, guys like Clement, they're constantly referring and quoting from the scriptures. They're not uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit writing a new thing, which is something that you'll find in, I think, Paul. He, he refers to, alludes to, and quotes from the Old Testament, but he is constructing um, a new covenant argument. Yeah, there, does, there does seem to be something there, but I, I, don't, I, I doubt I could prove, mm-hmm. I doubt I could prove my assertion, but it seems sensible to me that all the writings that we have in the Scripture were completed before Jerusalem. Yeah, and I think that's a sensible, a sensible um, way, way to look at it. Yeah. Yes? Are you adding the Shepherd of Hermes under No, the Shepherd of Hermes was authored by a different man, we think. We're not sure. We don't know for certain. Uh, but we will be covering the Shepherd of Hermes. Uh, the Shepherd of Hermes is a very interesting little book. Also highly regarded in the ancient church. That's in uh, the Apocryphal right? It is. Yes, you will. Um, and we know that it was, it was considered very highly <laughs> and profitably used. But I think questions of its allegorical method and questions of authorship kept it out of the canon. Yeah, he doesn't refer to it, so, and it doesn't quite sound like his argument. It does, the style is not the same. Clement sounds like Paul. The Shepherd of Hermas, mm, not quite. But when we get there, that's going to be very exciting, very cool. I see a few of you even believe me. Do <laughs> you have any idea how exciting it is to read something that's 1,900 years old? And then find that somehow, somehow the Lord has created a resonance between what was written then and your heart now. And is that not an act of the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Yes. He does. Yes. He is very much so. Uh, And you'll find in in the first, or I should say the second generation, in the second generation of men, uh, the, uh, the pastoral concern of these men breathes through their letters. When, when we get to, um, and it'll be in the next, the next series, uh, the next lecture, when we get to Ignatius. Ignatius, um, he was about 80-ish. He was pretty old. Uh, he had been the bishop in Antioch for a very long time. And I mentioned Trajan on, on his Parthian campaign. Does anybody know where Parthia was? Okay, we got one hand. Any other hands? Okay, we got a not quite a hand. Okay. Uh, Modern-day Iran and Iraq. 
Okay, so if you go from the Iraq-Syria-Jordanian border all the way east past Afghanistan into parts of China and India, that's the Parthian Empire. It's Rome's big nemesis. They're either fighting the Goths in the north or the Parthians, and sometimes both at the same time. Uh, they had communication. Uh, <laughs> so this guy, Trajan, decides he's going to go pound on the Parthians because that's what a good Roman should do, and he does. He succeeds marvelously. He marches all the way down to modern Basra on the, uh, on the coast, takes all their stuff, sacks Tessaphon, that's their capital city, uh, drags all this loot back, famously wealthy. The, um, uh, he's got this famous art, arch in uh, Rome, Trajan's arch, and it's got pictures of all these soldiers like stabbing Parthians and stealing their stuff, right? I mean, it's a good, pious Roman. And um, Ignatius was hauled up in front of him in Antioch. Trajan overwintered in Antioch before he went south. Uh, he was hauled up in front of him on charges of atheism. <laughs> um, a bishop called an atheist. That's funny. Uh, he was called an atheist because he didn't worship Roman gods, not because he didn't worship any gods. He didn't worship their gods. So anyway, he gets convicted of atheism, and he gets hauled off to Rome. And Trajan's like, when I get back to Rome, I'm going to throw you to the lions. And Ignatius is like, okay. But while you're going east and I'm going west, I can write, and I can visit people. And so he writes a whole pile of epistles to all these churches. He visits these churches along his route, and then he writes back to them. And some of it's just great, like just great pastoral wisdom. He, he talks to people um, about one of their bishops. Uh, your bishop's young. Uh, please listen to him. Don't think badly of him because he's not old. Sounds a lot like Timothy. Eh? Like, it's marvelous stuff. And, and then he says, he writes a letter to the Roman church. He's not there yet. And he says, look, I know that you have political power, and I know you got sway, and I know you got some insiders in the imperial court. Don't get me off on this atheism charge. I'm ready to go meet Jesus. I'm 80. Don't get between me and Christ. <laughs> right, that's, that's a man. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I mean, this was an 80-year-old who walked everywhere. He did not have a truck. So, any, any further questions? All right, well then, yes, one. Yes, yeah. The burning, that was, yeah, 64, 64. So, he would have lived through that burning, and I have no idea if he lost his house. <laughs> he didn't say. <laughs> yeah. But that amphitheater that you can go visit today was built in the suburb that burned down. So, you know, urban renewal. <laughs> Yay for that. All right, let's close in prayer and then cookies. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that you've given us uh, fathers in your church that we can look to for counsel and wisdom and that we can learn from them. We praise you for such. We ask that you would cause us to be fathers in our day. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Dad, yes. Do you think Otho Baggins from Lord of the Rings was named after? Probably. Probably. <laughs>